0: Well good morning once again we 're going to continue in our service by uh, looking at god 's word we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark again and just to remind you where we were last week we were on the mountaintop we were beholding or getting a glimpse of the glorified Savior uh, and it was almost the definition of a mountaintop experience there Peter wanted to stay he wanted to build tents he wanted to to live in that moment. Um, But it was only meant to be a glimpse, an encouragement, a window into the glory of Jesus as they were still headed toward the cross. And so in this text, we're headed down the mountain, down into the valley. Jesus is going from glory back into the grim darkness of the world, back to a world, as uh, Luther says, a world with devils filled, back to a faithless generation. Uh, back to a desperate people in need of a savior. So with that, let's turn to our text. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 29. Mark 9, 14 to 29. Hear God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd, Coming, come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you as dependent people. We need your help to understand your words. We need your help to apply them to our hearts, and we need your help to live them out. We need your help. And so, Lord, we cry out to you to help us. Help us to to see and hear and understand the glories of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've already mentioned, we're, we're back in the valley. And as we look at this text... There are just a few things that I want us to, to consider. The, the big idea, the big thing that I want us to think about is, what does it mean to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the sort of overarching theme of the text, is this idea of belief and unbelief. And we have this great expression, of course, that we will look at from uh, the, the the Father who says, I believe, help my unbelief, one of these great, very relatable Uh, statements, prayers that we find in Scripture. So we're going to be looking at faith. But what I want us to see particularly, it's a call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through whom even the powers of hell and death itself cannot be matched. So the powers of hell and death itself are ultimately defeated. So again, we want us to consider what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom even the powers of hell and death itself are no match. We're going to look at this in three parts. First, I want us to look at the overwhelming powers of hell and death. Secondly, I want us to consider the pervasive unbelief we see in the text. And then finally, I want us to think about faith in this patient and omnipotent Lord who breaks the power of hell and death so let's let's do this in three parts three three ways the overwhelming powers of hell and death as i mentioned in the introduction jesus and his three in his three closest companions disciples peter james and john are coming down from the mountain they had just seen jesus transfigured um, and it was a spiritual high. It was they were on the mountain. It was this glorious moment. Um, Peter ready to make those permanent dwellings. But now they're coming back down to the mess of the world. And as they approach uh, the the crowds, as they approach the other disciples who are there waiting for them, uh, there's a dispute going on. It's a dispute between the disciples and the scribes, presumably who'd come up from Jerusalem, likely to investigate or find evidence against Jesus, and they're interested uh, in bringing Jesus down, finding some way uh, to make a uh, a case against him. But along with the remaining disciples who are down there, there is a crowd of people. And as Jesus came, this crowd was amazed when they saw him. Some uh, have wondered as they look at this text, maybe Jesus is like Moses coming off the mountain and his face is all aglow and they are just amazed. Um I don't think that's the case. And here's my reasoning. First, it's not in the text, uh, the most obvious reason. But secondly, uh, Jesus had strictly prohibited the disciples from telling anyone what had happened on that mountain. And uh, it seems to me that it would uh, go against even what he was, he was instructing his disciples if he came down with some residual glory. Um, but it's not indicated in the text. Now, what I think is... the crowd sees is not some aspect of Jesus that is transfigured, transformed. It's not that he just happened to appear at this moment. I think what they saw was Jesus himself. They were amazed at Jesus. Here was this this one who had come and performed all these healings, the one who had cast out demons, the one who had fed 5,000 and 4,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. Their amazement was at Jesus. And I think there's something else going on here. I think that there is a contrast. They're amazed at Jesus, and he will do amazing things in our text, um, but there was great disappointment with the disciples. The disciples were unable to heal or to cast this demon out. And we'll come back to the to the disciples in a little bit, but I think that there is this there's this contrast between the Lord's glory and his followers. We'll look at that in a little bit. As Jesus came to his disciples, he asked, what are you arguing about with them? That is, why are you arguing with the scribes? That's the them here, the disciples. Why are you arguing with the scribes? And at this moment, we are introduced to the person at the center of the conflict, a man, a father of a boy who is possessed by an unclean spirit the boy that is uh, this man this father comes forward and he explains he says teacher a deferential word teacher i brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whatever and whenever it seizes him it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth becomes rigid so i asked the disciples to cast it out and they were not Able. Now, there are just a few things that I want to note about the situation. Both Jesus and the disciples have cast demons out of people before in the Gospel of Mark. And that might cause us to wonder, why weren't the disciples able to do it now? In fact, that's the very question that the disciples will ask when they get Jesus alone. They will ask, why weren't we able to do this? And We're going to look at that in our next point. But there also seems to be here a difference with this particular demon. There seems to be an escalation in the determination of the various demons we've seen. At the beginning, there was some casting out. Then we had the demoniac who was, um, who was uh, Legion, the, the the one who had the many demons. Um, and there were various demons that we've seen, but it's there seems to be something greater here that's going on, a a greater resistance, if you will. Um, In particular, in this case, the demon is intent on the absolute destruction of the boy. Not only does he make the boy mute and throw him into epileptic-like fits, um, and as an aside, there is some question as to whether or not this was, in fact, epilepsy rather than a demon possession. I would say certainly the symptoms are like those of an epileptic or having a grand mal seizure or something like that. But what is absolutely clear is that it was not a mere physical ailment. Rather, it seems that the unclean spirit used these seizures along with other attacks to disturb and destroy this boy. And as we read on in the text, we're told that when the Spirit saw Jesus, it even convulsed this man's son. There's a direct correlation between the Spirit seeing Jesus, the Spirit present and disturbing the Son. And so I think it's clear that this is spiritual, not just physical. It convulsed this man's son, caused him to roll on the ground, foam at the mouth. But not only that, this Spirit also tried to kill the Son by causing him to uh, jump into the water, go into the fire. And so there seems to be um, an escalation, if you will, of of resistance by by the powers of hell. And here it's like the final throes of battle. The powers of hell are grasping whatever means at their disposal to destroy and to impede Jesus. Now, as a father, I cannot imagine the helpless terror That this father faced. And it's even harder for me to imagine what it must have been like to be that little boy. It was very literally hell on earth for them. And it is a shocking thing. It's hard for us to get our minds around. It's not an experience that we necessarily had. Another thing that we note is that there is a negative corollary here to Jesus' transfiguration. Let me me explain what I mean by this. On the mountain, the veil was pulled back, and we got to a glimpse of the glory of Christ on the mountain. But here, with this demon-possessed boy, it's as if the veil that's always around the world is being pulled back, and the horrors of the fall and the powers of hell that are at work in this world are being revealed, being seen, sort of, for what they are. It is an overwhelming and shocking thing. I'm not sure we always have a sense of the true state of affairs in our world. Occasionally, we get glimpses of the evil that pervades our world. Occasionally there is war and strife that comes to our forefront or hatred and lies or gross sin and corruption or injustices and oppression. These things raise their ugly heads. And at those moments, we're reminded things are not as they ought to be. These past months in our nation and world, we have been reminded that things are not As they ought to be. I already quoted Martin Luther in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He says, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. That is what's going on behind the veil. It's exactly what the evil one seeks to undo us, to destroy us by whatever means possible. Sometimes it's through our comfort, lulls us into complacent comfort. Sometimes it's through deep suffering and pain. Sometimes it's through the very shadow of death itself. The evil one was seeking to undo this man and his son, he was seeking to undo the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. He was seeking to undo whatever modest faith existed in the crowds. And Scripture warns us, calls us to attention. Peter says it this way in Peter, uh, 1 Peter 5. He says, be sober-minded. In other words, be aware. Be aware of what's going on. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, Friends, the powers of hell are real, and they can be overwhelming. In fact, they often overwhelm our faith. They overwhelm our trust that God is greater and that God is good. And this is the next thing that I want us to look at in our text. I want us to look at the pervasiveness of unbelief here in our text. We are confronted by three sort of groups, if you will, of unbelief, three types of unbelief in our text, and I want us to look at each in turn. The first that we notice is the rank unbelief of the scribes. They had arrived on the scene at some point. We aren't told when. In fact, the only thing we're told is that they were arguing with the disciples, and after Jesus inquires about the dispute, the father of the demon-possessed boy steps forward He's indicating that the dispute was concerning the disciples' inability to cast out this demon. Maybe the scribes believed that they couldn't, that is, the disciples couldn't exercise the demon because they were in fact in league with it. Um, this was a charge that was put against Jesus and presumably his followers, that they were uh, in league with the evil one, that the powers that Jesus possessed were not from heaven, but from hell. So maybe that was the scribe's argument. I don't know. Or maybe they questioned, by what authority did these disciples have to cast out this demon? That is not their purview or right. By what authority were they doing this? Ironically, though, they themselves seemed disinterested in helping and more interested in finding fault with the disciples. Whatever the details of the argument Were, we are not told. Mark saw little importance in drawing those details out for us. But what is clear is their unbelief. They, like the demon itself, are attempting to find ways to destroy Jesus. And this is the nature of unbelief. It is a rejection of God. It is a rejection of his authority. It's a rejection of his power It is a rejection of his goodness. And it's at the very heart of man's rebellion. There may be some of you here this morning who have tuned in, not necessarily to listen, not necessarily to learn, not in humility to acknowledge and trust in God, but you're here to argue, to mock, to question, to find cause and warrant to reject Christ. Such unbelief is not some scientifically reasoned position, though you may feel it is. Rather, it's ultimately rebellion against the Creator. It's something that wells up within us because of our fallen condition. We reject God. And I want to warn you, I want to exhort you that we will see in a minute from this text, Christ is indeed Lord of all. And there is no power No resistance that can stand against his authority and rule. But here's the thing He is patient. He desires that you would put your trust, your faith in Him as the one who can deliver you. And we're going to look at this deliverance at the end, but I just want to encourage you and warn you where's your heart? Is it in rank unbelief and rebellion against your God and your Creator? Repent, turn, put your trust in the Lord of glory. But the second form of unbelief that we see here is in the unbelief of the disciples. And Jesus directs his exasperation toward them, and particularly when he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? We have seen this theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. The disciples follow him, but over and over again, they they miss Jesus. They miss who he is. And when this man, this father, comes to Jesus and says, these disciples were unable to cast out the demon, there's something lacking in terms of faith in the disciples. This language of, faithless generation, we've already seen it in past texts, harkens back to the language used of the faithless generation of Israelites in the Old Testament when they rebelled against God in the wilderness because they did not trust Him. It's a striking thing considering that Jesus' disciples followed Him all this way, that they confessed Him to be the Christ, and yet, They don't trust him. And we get a greater picture of the the kind of unbelief that the disciples display um, as the events unfold in our text. When they're alone together, after the events unfold, the disciples ask Jesus why they were unable to cast out the demon. Jesus says to them that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I want to be clear here. Jesus was not saying that they had the formula wrong in the sense that they hadn't had the correct incantation. If you had just said these words, everything would have been okay. But because you didn't say them in this way or in this order, it didn't work out. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that this was a pernicious and determined spirit. That even in its last moments, it tries to kill the boy. And secondly, more importantly, he is pointing out to them their unbelief. And that unbelief takes the shape of pride. They believed they could do this on their own. They believed that they could cast out the demons in their own strength. They began to think that the strength for such work was based in them. And here Jesus is saying, don't you understand, all of the power and authority resides not in you, but in me. You are the instrument. You are the vessel. Paul describes the apostolic ministry this way in Second Corinthians. He says, but we have this treasure, the glories of Christ, in jars of clay, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. How easy it is for us to start to believe that the gifts that God gives to his people are somehow inherent to us. We start to think that our abilities and our graces are somehow emanate from us, from our very essence. Believer, this is a subtle form of unbelief that can creep into our hearts and lives, and it's rooted in that rebellion, our desire to say that we don't need God. The good news is that Jesus did bear with his disciples. The good news is that despite the remaining vestiges of the fall, he was patient with them. He went all the way to the cross with them, even as they abandoned him. The third form of unbelief that we see in our text is that of the father. In many ways, it's the most understandable form. This father had seen the ravages of hell on his son. This father knew the suffering and the evil that had plagued his child from his birth. And he came hoping against hope that Jesus' disciples would be able to free his son. But because of their own faithlessness, their own attempt to drive out the demon in their own strength, they only further discouraged this poor father. And I just want to say as a note, as an aside, remember that your unbelief is infectious. Just as your faith is encouraging to others, Lack of faith can have the opposite impact. Whether it's rank unbelief like the scribes or pride like the disciples or it's simply the doubt that this Father has, our unbelief affects one another. We will in a moment come to the hope of the gospel and the remedy for unbelief in our hearts. And I want to keep reminding you that we're getting there because everything we've looked at thus far has been hard, but I want us to be reminded that there is hope for those Who struggle to believe. But I think it is important for us to consider the effect that unbelief has not only on ourselves, but on those around us. Anyway, this father comes to Jesus full of doubts. He says to Jesus, If you can do anything. (laughs) Many of us understand this kind of unbelief. It's the kind of unbelief that's born out of sorrow and grief it's a despair that begins to seep in because all of our experience says there is no hope. Job, he lost everything. He was tempted by his wife in such a moment of uncertainty to curse God and to die. It is this kind of unbelief seeping in it comes to the conclusion that God is either no good or is not powerful. It's a hard place to be. But we have to be reminded that God permits such suffering in order that He might elicit faith. That He might show His power in our weakness. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jesus, through our suffering, is calling us to, to cast ourselves at his feet. And so as we consider the pain and suffering that we experience, we are faced with two choices, to turn from God or to turn to Him. And this brings me to my final point and conclusion. We have all this unbelief that's going on in the text. But there is faith. And the, the point that I want to make in, in our final look here is to put our faith in the patient and omnipotent Lord who does break the power of hell and death. The Father says here, if you can. And Jesus responds to him by repeating his words, if you can, sort of an exclamation. And then Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. What Jesus is doing here is he's exposing the root of this man's unbelief the unbelief of the disciples and the unbelief of the scribes. He's exposing it all. But then Jesus offers an opportunity for faith. He wants to show the glories of his power in the life of this father and in the life of this young boy. He is calling him to action. And this poor father Weak and drained from his years of fear and terror, without any experiential reason to believe, cries out immediately, the text says. Without a hesitation, immediately he says, I believe! Help my unbelief. I don't know that there's a more relatable expression of faith in all of Scripture. This man had nowhere to go Nowhere to go. He was uncertain about what would happen. And yet, he also knows that his hope rested alone in Christ. So not only is this man asking for his son to be freed from the oppression of this demon, this father asks for faith. Lord, if it takes faith, give me faith. Help my unbelief. Lord, I do believe. I believe you You are the source. If all things are possible in you, then help me to believe. Help me to trust. Who of us does not know this desperate prayer? And here's the comfort. The power and deliverance of Jesus does not come based on the strength of our faith. But our deliverance is based on the strength and power of Jesus. It says elsewhere in Scripture, it only takes the faith of a mustard seed to move mountains. And as Paul says, faith is a gift. Our faith, it's a gift. And it's the power to save. Not not anything from us, but that gift is the gift of Christ to us to lay hold of him. And it all belongs to Jesus. There's nothing that we bring. but he instills in us, the faith that enables us to cling to him. It belongs to him. It's his power, his strength. And what we see next in this text is the power of hell and death being vanquished. Jesus called the demon out in the last effort. The demon tried to destroy the boy. As the demon was coming out, he convulsed the boy once more. He tried to kill it. The text says the boy was like a corpse. Everyone around thought he was dead. Now, scholars say are uncertain. Maybe he was dead. Maybe he wasn't. But either way, Jesus raised him up as if he was coming from death to life. And this is the power of Jesus. There is no one, no thing, no power on this earth that can break the powers of hell and death save the Lord Jesus Christ There is no power on earth that can raise us from the dead, save the power of Jesus Christ. There is no power on earth that can cause our faithless hearts to believe, save the power of Jesus Christ. And He calls you to believe in Him, to rest in Him, to trust in Him, to cry out, I believe even in your weakness and unbelief. Do you know this Lord of glory who comes down from the mountain to the valley of the shadow of death, who went to the cross and vanquished hell and death itself by his own death? Do you know Jesus, the Lord of glory? Have you put your trust in him? And in your weakness... In your lack of ability, cast yourself on the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who vanquishes the power of sin and death for us, who gives us faith, who bears with us, who calls us to trust. Lord, we thank you for this, Father, this example of faith that we have that reminds us that it's not the measure of our faith, but it's the measure of Christ. The measure of His power and strength that saves. We Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.